Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah will be in chapters 1 through the first five verses of chapter 2 this morning. Page 566 in the Bible provided for you. Many thanks to my brother, dear friend, and partner in the work, Dan Kruver, for preaching last week. I was greatly encouraged for that word, as I know you were as well. We begin this morning a short-ish series that will take us one week past Easter, and we will land on what is maybe the best text in the Bible for Good Friday, and one of the best texts in the Bible, a little less obvious, for Easter Sunday. It's not a tour through all of the book of Isaiah. We'll begin this morning in the first chapter, and the rest of our time will be uh, in chapters 42 through uh, 53 and parts of the end of the book. So that's a little projection of where we're headed. Pray for me. This is a difficult book. It's a very important book in our Bibles. It is maybe in some ways the most familiar, uh, but it is difficult to preach. We're going to begin by reading the entirety of the first chapter and the first five verses of chapter two. And I just put a simple question before you. How does God save sinners? The book of Isaiah begins. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have redeemed and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overgrown by foreign, overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have all been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil from your, of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. How the faithful city has become a whore. She who is full of justice, righteousness, 
lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore, the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you. I will smelt away your dross with lie. I will remove all your alloy and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness But rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers, and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder, and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The word of the Lord that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And so begins Isaiah's prophecy. It begins abruptly, to say the least. We have dropped down into something, have we not? We've dropped down into a courtroom. Hear, O heavens and earth, Uh, Heavens and earth are called as witnesses, God speaking against his people, measuring their deeds and thoughts and life against his his holy word. And a verse in, and we're on the ground. These were tumultuous times. This takes place in the 8th century BC. We have four kings listed here. Uzziah was a pretty good king, but overreached. In later years, Jotham, you may mention later, Ahaz, he was trouble. At the beginning of the 8th century, you had Assyria, a growing superpower, increasingly intimidating for the people of Israel, the people of Israel, two kingdoms at that time. Ahaz made an alliance with Assyria against Syria, failing to trust the Lord, throwing in politically with a foreign power instead of trusting a very much greater God and his promises. Hezekiah was, was better but made a foolish decision that led the people into captivity under Babylon many years later. It was a tumultuous time and we enter that time abruptly with this description of the people It's a big beginning to Isaiah's letter. As I mentioned, he calls on the heavens and the earth. So that's everyone and everything is involved already by verse 2. It begins in the days of Uzziah and these kings. Verse 2 of chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days, those future days of the Messiah, of the Spirit, when All will be made right. This this might as well span all all of history. It looks as far forward as it can, although it starts in the ground in the 8th century. It's an obscure beginning to a book. The prophets are the hardest to read. Can I get an amen? 
They really are. You've got narrative, you've got poetry, you've got that going on, but then you've got God's purpose in creation, which stands behind it, his promises to Abraham, which stand behind it, uh, the covenant at Sinai with Israel, and then his promises to David, and all of these are background that aren't listed at the beginning, but they're there. Then there's the, the hard-to-remember historical stuff that I, I kind of uh, ran over there at the beginning. I always have to look up, wait, what's going on with this prophet? Wait, who is that king, good or bad? Um, I am that way. It doesn't tend to hang in my head very, very long personally. The prophets can be hard. They're obscure, partly because of our historical and cultural distance. But in this case, it's partly by design. For the first five chapters, there's really almost no historical references. Besides the names of the kings here, there's almost no names named, hardly any places named. We're not given historical context. Isaiah's call from God happens in chapter 6. This whole book here is Isaiah compiling his preaching material in a, in a meaningful way by guidance of the Spirit for our edification. And we have five chapters, this is the beginning of it, that help us get a sense of the situation in which, into which Isaiah was called by God. So you will see there are hints here. God wasn't done with his people or his purposes for humanity. It begins in Jerusalem, but we see the nation streaming here to the mountain at the end of this, of this section. God wasn't done. He called Isaiah to speak these words. He had a purpose through Isaiah. But Isaiah's whole book begins deliberately with these kind of obscure chapters. The, over, the overarching purpose of these chapters is to create an overwhelming impression of the spiritual danger of the people of God and just how down to a thread the whole story was. And I think we can get that impression. But it's also obscure just because of how the prophets work. And this can be encouraging to know. Isaiah will drop a hint at something and then leave it. And he'll pick it up chapters later and revisit it. And he'll put it back on the shelf. And then he'll pick it up again and talk about it at greater length. Some different ways to come at this book. But I believe there are some seven cycles. We looked at one cycle here. Seven cycles that run through the whole book. We're beginning our series with this first cycle, and we'll take the rest of our series really through the seventh cycle, if I'm counting right. So obscurity, some of it's deliberate. Isaiah will put something down, he'll plant the seed, and he'll walk away from it, and later in the book, he'll pick it up for some development. So sometimes if you're scratching your head, just... It's like when you watch a movie, you will do that. In fact, you won't even scratch your head. You'll assume that the, the author will develop a theme. And maybe our problem is that we just simply don't spend enough time in these old books. And so maybe you would lower your expectations for what you can get out of a book Isaiah, like Isaiah uh, in one reading or in bitty bites. Uh, lower your expectations way low for that. Uh, but maybe you would raise your expectations for what you could get you would hear them all the way out. Maybe once a year you would say, not a bad recommendation, I'm going to read through the book of Isaiah in one sitting. Every year, in, I'm making this up, every year in January, I'm going to pick a day and read through the whole book of Isaiah. You do that, you'll read your New Testament different. This book, maybe more, oh, it's hard to say, maybe more than any other prophet, it's imagery and promises, and it's it's gospel logic sit underneath our New Testament. The word gospel, good news, coming from Isaiah's prophecy here. So it's an abrupt beginning. It puts us into Isaiah's tumultuous times, which we feel it's a big beginning. It's an obscure beginning. And it's a beautifully simple beginning. It really is. This chapter here gives us a vision of two cities and raises one central dilemma. A vision of two cities and one central dilemma. It's our outline for the morning. So let's begin. A vision of two 
cities. There's a description of one city in the first part, and in the last part, a description of that same city, renovated and beautiful and renewed and righteous, a city in rebellion and a city made righteous, a city that grieves the Lord, and a city that glorifies Him, a city that is faithless and a city that is faithful, or a city that is out of service and a city that is in God's service. And no, that's not a, a dig on AT&T. Someone already said this morning, oh, that's a good one. That's a dig at AT&T, isn't it? I'm not reading enough news. Maybe I'm reading the wrong news. I caught the headline. Sorry, AT&T subscribers. I really had an elevator in mind more than anything. When we look at this first, this first city in the first part of our reading, it's as though we've come to a broken down elevator, useless to us. The buttons don't work, or if they work, they take us the wrong place, and if not just the wrong place, but the wrong direction altogether. Uh, there's a big out-of-service sign on the people of God on the page, and this speaks of Israel, or more specifically, Judah and Jerusalem, Israel taken into Assyrian captivity at this time. Judah and Jerusalem left, and Judah later captured and ransacked. It's a mess, how, whatever way you cut it. Uh, it's a broken down elevator. Now, I'll give you some insight into why I like that image of an elevator in a bit. But I picked the imagery of servant on purpose because later in Isaiah's prophecy, the answer to all of this is God's servant. And so what we really have here, taking the imagery of the whole book, is it's a city out of service and a city in God's service or a people who are servants of the living God, just as we were made to be. Well, we're elevators and inspectors this morning. How about that? We've never done that before for a, or a metaphor frame for a sermon, but I offer to you, us today, we are elevator inspectors. So we're going to inspect the elevator. Listen, Isaiah gives us like 250 images in this. He's inviting me to come up with my own. So, and he might have used this anyway, so we're going to use it. We're elevator, elevator inspectors. We're going, to work, we're going to work from the problem that we can see the symptoms back to the deeper problem. Uh, verses 7 through 8. Your country lies desolate and your cities burned with, with fire in your very presence. Foreigners devour your land. We have here a beaten down and besieged city. It's like a lodge in a cucumber field. I didn't have to Google that. Uh, the context tells me that that's not a great place to live. That's not a place that's going to hold up. Maybe for part of a season. I hate cucumbers. I like pickles. It's a besieged city. It's an unstable city. It's a vulnerable place, ravaged by foreign invaders. No place to live. Verses 5 through 6, working up back to the beginning of the text here, we move from a beaten down and besieged city to a bruised and bedridden people. Why will you still be struck down? And why will you continue to rebel? So whatever we're about to read is a matter of their own decision. The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. The soul to the foot, the whole, the whole person is laid up here. 
There's no soundness in the body. Bruises and sores and raw wounds not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. In the context of Israel's story, um, these are bruises from discipline. The Lord's discipline on his people for obedience blessing and for disobedience curse. Now there's an important, there's an important change <laughs> for us when we come to the new covenant. When you hear that little equation, the Lord Jesus takes the curse that we deserve and he gives us the blessing that he's earned by his obedience. Don't forget that. But understand that the only way you can understand what Jesus took for you by way of curse and what he won for you with his obedience is by putting your head down to this page and seeing what disobedience deserves, you see. This was promised. Why will you still be struck down? This is this is like an obstinate child that will not change and digs in and digs in and digs in. And it's just as a side note, uh, there, there is a pattern that God has built into the structure of family where fathers and parents do discipline their children. And as a matter of pattern, although not without exception, you have to know your children and know yourself and know if you're being inconsistent and know if you're being lazy, it's too easy but that the foolishness is hard bound up in the heart of a child and the rod drives it far away. And it, it is that basic truth that should be at work here. But here, Israel is like the child that knows full well how to avoid discipline and keeps asking for it and asking for it. There is a stubbornness in the heart of Israel, a rebellion. And by the way, it is not just Israel's. Israel is that people with the greatest opportunity to avoid this. No, she is God's humanity recreation project. And it's failing because the problem with humanity is that bad. So as we speak about the people on this ancient page, hear it about ourself apart from the grace of God and Jesus. We move from a, a city beaten down and besieged to a bruised and bedridden, bedridden people. Now to a people who have betrayed the Lord who brought them up. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Oh, God describes himself as a father here, for they are his children. It's a choice image. He has adopted Israel, and he did it in sovereign grace. He came to Abraham in grace and said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless the families of the earth through you. I will give you a land called Abraham to obey him. And Israel, the nation, is the children of Jacob. And here we have Judah, one of the tribes, being addressed in direct fashion. These are God's kids. How would we describe God's kids? Ah, sinful nation. That ah, there is a lament. So you need to hear God as searing in his judgments, but, but sincere as a father who loves his, his wayward son. Ah, sinful nation. Well, there's a word, sinful. But we have more words than that, and we should use more words than that for our sin as Christians. Uh, people laden up with iniquity. They're twisted. Their desires are twisted. Offspring of evildoers. Um, that's worse than evildoers. Uh, they go from bad to worse. Uh, they deal corruptly. They are not straight in their dealings. They have forsaken the Lord. They're adulterers. They despised the Holy One of Israel. They're utterly estranged. And of course, that's where all this comes from. And that's where all of this leads. He says the ox does not know its the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. I almost titled the sermon "The Ox Knows Its Owner." Just let that hang over you for the whole morning, and you think, "Well, the ox knows its owner." So, 
It's not natural for humans not to know their owner. Even Knox knows its owner, but here God's people don't even know their God. And it's a, it's a moral rebellion that has led to that spiritual ignorance. There is an intimacy that is intended between God and his people that he has lavishly pursued that they have and had rejected and despised. A people reared by the Lord, betrayed the Lord who brought them, brought them up. Just a word, I do this every couple of years, on the word brokenness. It's not a great word for our sin. Um, it's an okay word for describing our ravished situation, the way that sin breaks us down and ruins us. In a way, we are victims of Satan's cruel ways. But Scripture will consistently put it on us. And broken seems to accent a kind of a passive relationship with our sinful state and our sinful consequences. Yes, we're ravaged, but broken is not a good substitute for the word rebellion. Really, if we're going to use the word broken, I think a great way to use the word broken is to speak of God's broken heart over our hard hearts. How we refuse to be broken unless God, by his grace, breaks in to break us and turn us to himself. I'm inclined to say our church will be healthier, and I think we're okay on this, for using more biblical words for our problem rather than merely sin or only we are broken. If we're going to speak of ourselves as broken, perhaps the way to speak of ourselves is as those with a heartbreaking condition as sinners apart from Christ. Why do I say a heartbreaking condition? Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, children that I have reared and brought up. I don't hear a cynicism there. I don't hear a fed-upness there. In the ah is a lament. I hear a lament. He is crying out, and the Lord is crying over our sin. And so we ought to cry out over sin ourselves. There's a place for that. And even cry over sinners, there is a place for that as well. Well, let's go a little farther because he keeps going farther. The balance of the material is on the harder things. So let's just keep going and see how he develops this. Um, he, he, we've, we've, we've looked at the problem in verses 1 through 8. Jumping now to verse 10, we'll get more detail as the rebellion is unpacked. This is the state of humanity apart from the grace of God in Jesus to change us. Remember that. We see the word here in verse 10, and we heard the word here in verse 2, so we know we're at a new division. It's like turning the page. God's heart is broken because our hearts are bent. The elevator goes in the wrong direction. And I'll summarize the two problems that the people of God had in this way, and I'll personalize them, that our hearts bend away from the Lord. We'll look at verses 10 through 15. And our hearts bend against one another, verses 21 through 23. A problem of worship and a social problem and of our relationships, our injustices that we commit against one another. Verses 10 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Let me just say that they were not expecting to be called that. Well, why would I say that? Well, because they were doing all the things. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of your burnt offerings and rent. Well, didn't you ask for it? I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of, of goats. The whole sacrificial system was about reconciling 
God to his people and making it possible for him, a holy God, to dwell with his people. They cared less about the Lord, and in self-righteousness, they kept fulfilling all of the little tasks that he gave them without respect to him. They did it for themselves and their own self-righteous feelings. Their hearts bend, move away from him, but with a show of self-righteousness to him, and he is not mocked. There's really no inherent danger in what we do on the Lord's day, and we come and we have rhythms and patterns, but there is a danger in every human heart to make of these patterns and singing and standing and sitting and ordinances and these things, being in the room for them, and to trust in the movements. Don't trust in the movements to church again. Even in your Bible, again, that's where grace will be found. Here's where grace will be found. But all of these movements are meant to move us heavenward toward God. Christianity is about a relationship with the living God. And that is God's point here. They have left that off. And he doesn't need their rams and, or their outward obedience, certainly their, their rituals. Our hearts bend away from him, apart from his grace. Our hearts also bend against one another. We move against one another. Verses 21 through 23, how the faithful city has become a whore. She was who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. It's the taking of life. Your silver has become dross, wine mixed with water. That's no good. Your princes are rebels, companions of thieves. Look at the whole list here. Everyone loves a bribe. And everyone runs after gifts. Our hearts move against one another. And without shame and without restraint. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. Tries to get in on the scheme. Leave us without so many restraints, parents to raise us right, and human government ordered properly, and we just get about the worst and the worst and the worst and the worst of sins against one another. Thank God for holding us back. We may conclude from this brief reflection on these two movements of the heart, apart from God's grace, that the social health of any people is tied to the God of that people. And we see that in nations. We see that in our own nation. We see that on the page here in the nation of Israel. As she has abandoned the one true and living God from the heart, so she has moved against herself Uh, Members of this community against one another in murder, in thievery, in bribery. Worst of all, it brings injustice to the fatherless and to the widow. And not just in everyday life, but in the context of the courts. The widow's cause does not come to them. It's a pretty sick community there, and the main problem is owing to their relationship with their God and the God whom they worship. If we do not give ourselves first to God, we will go against one another. If we will not worship God, we will not love one another. If we will not worship God, we will look to one another for the worship that we want in God's place. If we will not acknowledge God, the supreme Lord and creator and redeemer who owns us and is over us, and acknowledge that as a good thing from the heart with love and trust, then we will demand worship and trust and obedience from one another as gods ourselves. 
If we will not worship God as he is, then we will imagine God as we like him to be and put ourselves in his place, in other words. That's the simple logic on the page here that the Bible bears out. The elevator imagery is apt. I come back to that now. Because Jerusalem is the elevator to God, from God to us. In the context of the Bible's story, we are banished from Eden because of our sin. God could not dwell with a sinful people because he's holy and won't compromise his justice for our sake. But in coming to Abraham and promising land and a nation and coming to Moses and instructions for the tabernacle and later the temple, that's where Jerusalem was the place of the temple, this was where God touched down on earth and the sacrificial system made it possible for God and mankind to dwell together. Now there was more to come. There's Jesus to come. But at this time of the story, you have to understand, if Jerusalem goes, there's no way back to God. There is no way back. If the elevator is out of service, then we are stuck. Humanity is stuck. There is no way for the nations to get to God. God promised to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. The only way back to God after Eden is through Abraham and the nation given by him. And how all that's supposed to work out is not altogether clear at this point, but it is clear that it will come through Abraham and his people. And if God had not allowed there to be a few survivors, the whole thing would have ended. But God is a God of grace. The elevator is out of service. It's an apt metaphor that I hope you remember. Let's look now at the second city. Verses 2 through chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, so there's going to be a time to come, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. Mountains in the ancient Near East understood to be the places where God met with, the gods met with the people. And so Isaiah is using that imagery. God is Jerusalem, while not the highest mountain there ever was, is said to be the mountain of the Lord. It's where the one true and living God meets with his people. It will be established as the highest of the mountains, which is to say, Every other of man's attempts to meet God is as nothing. This is the way to God, and he will make that way straight. And all the nations will flow to it. And the many peoples shall come and say, Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths, a desire for obedience. For out of Zion shall go the law And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and not learn war anymore. There are some who would would seek this vision apart from the one true and living God. And and their vision for getting to utopia, Marxism and its species and communism leads here. Any man tries to get to a better world and fix humanity and fix the world will have to judge the world on the way there. That's why we have killing fields and bodies in the ground from dictators and movements. No, there is a desire in the human heart for something else, for somewhere better, for peace. And one explanation on offer today is that the reason why the nations are warring is because the nations are warring. So if we would just put down our, our swords and guns, then everyone would put down their swords and guns. That the structures that people are inside are the explanation for what comes out of humans. And if you can fix the structures, to destroy the structures, if you could just have a kind of globalism without God, then there would be no warring between nations, for we'd all be at peace with each other. It's a pipe dream to get to this apart from the living God and his judgment. 
that he'll bring. We leave it to him. And until then, it's fine for nations to arm up. They ought to. It's a dangerous world. The world's an armed camp, and that's not changing. Well, this second city, it's in the heart of every human. God's put eternity in our hearts. And uh, the Bible tells us how we get there. And that is the big point of tension in this story. We have here perfect worship with the mountain lifted up. We have peace between God's people, and God's people include men and women from among all the nations. Isaiah sees that. He's seen the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. How do we get that? How do we get that? It's the big question. How does the city at the beginning of injustice and false worship become, verse 27, excuse me, verse 26, God will restore the people, and afterward you shall be called a city of righteousness, a faithful, a faithful city. How, how do we get from faithless to faithful, from forsaking God to loving Him, from rebelling, from being ruthless with one another to being righteous? He's promised it. There it is. There it is. Which leads us to the second part of our sermon, which will be shorter. One central dilemma. Two cities, one central dilemma. Captured in the word how. And I'll resolve it a little bit, but it's okay to sit in the word how. Because Isaiah just started his book. And and so in preaching through a book like Isaiah or parts of Isaiah, what we're not going to do is tie everything up all the way every time. We listen as Christians on this side of the cross, so in a way it's resolved. We'll get there. But we're also going to let Isaiah unfold his story like a flower and to do it on his own terms and to follow him in the similar way that we have in this chapter as he does. We get some hints as to how in this chapter, perhaps you heard them. The big hint, verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, just as we sang. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. In simple, God will have to forgive our sins full stop for there to be anything like a glorious city like this, a people who worship God and are at peace with one another. There will have to be the forgiveness of sins because we can't worship God like that and we can't be at peace with one another with the guilt hanging over us for our sins. And we'll have to take them away. This is a good stain remover, whatever it is. Scarlet, white as snow. Crimson, like wool. The full forgiveness of sins. That's beautiful. One of the most familiar, could be said to be the most familiar passage in the Bible. Not everyone knows where it's from. There it is. The 8th century BC in the book of Isaiah. Now you know where it's from. But even as we read that first chapter, it was familiar to your ears, but not in a context that sounded altogether familiar. So how will he bring about that forgiveness? Well, he calls them to repent and to cease to do evil, and if you're willing and obedient, there's a repentance that is involved that bookends this. But it's all of grace. It is not a reward or a compensation for, for changing. There is still the problem of guilt and the problem of sin that the whole sacrificial system points to. That's going to have to get resolved. And there's a hint of grace at a few places in this chapter. Look in verse 9. After that first run we had, if the Lord of hosts had not left a few, us a few survivors, we should be like Sodom and Gomorrah. They're really no different than Sodom and Gomorrah at that point. But God has left a few survivors. And why has he done that? Well, because he's going to keep his promise to Abraham. And he's going to fulfill his purpose to bring about a new humanity for his name and to glorify himself and a people for his own possession. He's going to do it. So by grace, there are a few survivors in this nation who'd forsaken the Lord because he had set their love on them 
and made them his children. He delivered them from Egyptian slavery into the land and into covenant with him. And just like Pharaoh had all those chances and those 10 plagues to turn but kept hardening his heart, he's delivered his people into his loving covenant and they over and over again reject the Lord. This is the problem with humanity and we need divine intervention. I see a hint of grace here as you do as well. Other hints as to how God will bring about this forgiveness just from this first first chapter. Well, he won't compromise his justice to do it. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. God will not compromise any of his justice in the process of bringing about full forgiveness. How will he do that and remain a just judge who is just called on heaven and earth to witness the sins of the people? Now, he won't compromise his justice. We have the hint right there on the page. It will even come about. There's something he will even bring about through judgment, and that is the full transformation of his people Verse 25, I will turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross, was with a lie, and remove all your alloy. He's going to purify a people for himself through judgment. And I will restore your judges at first and your counselors at the beginning. These are things God will do. And afterward, after that process, you shall be called a city of righteousness, the faithful city. So there are some hints for you. How will the city in ruins become the city in righteousness? And remember, the city is shorthand for the people of God. How will God have for himself a people who actually love him and worship him and are at peace with one another? Well, at the center of that project is the project of the forgiveness of sin. Sin must be dealt with. And we know that it will come about by grace We know that our God will not compromise his justice in the process. And we know that he has more in mind than just to take away our sins and give us righteousness, but to actually transform us into the kinds of people that can genuinely love him from the heart, that will come to him in repentance. He works this transformation. Let me put it in a sentence where the whole chapter has been going. Isaiah doesn't resolve it all, but he gives us this simple truth that for our total transformation, we need God's total intervention. Whatever way out is possible from our sinful situation will only be made possible by the intervening grace of God. And that goes for the people listening on the ground of this original uh, prophecy. And that goes for us. This here, in a way, you can take it as uh, the story of your own life. Story of a human life, apart from the grace of God. How does God get us from death to life? How does he make us the kind of people he made us to be in the first place, given human sin? I did not low your love within and had no taste for heaven's joys, but your spirit gave me life and opened up your word to me. And through the gospel, the good news of your son gave me endless hope and peace. That is expansive good news. And that God is willing and able to intervene is plain from the page right here, where he has promised to do so. And we will take Isaiah's lead in discovering how in the weeks ahead. There are some seven of these cycles throughout the book of different lengths. And we will come next week in the weeks ahead to the, what have been called the songs of the servant. The songs of the servant. There are four of them. We'll spend several weeks on the fourth, which you'll maybe be most familiar with. 
They're found between Isaiah 42 and 53. So if you want to camp out in Isaiah, Isaiah 1 and Isaiah 42 through 53. You'll get more out of the preaching, always will, for reading ahead. So I would encourage that. That God is willing and able to intervene is clear to us from the page. And it's also clear to me uh, in you. It's clear from the page and it's clear from the pew. For you remember how Jesus spoke to his disciples concerning the church? That the church is a city on a hill that must not be hidden? Do you hear that word hill different now? Do you hear that word city different now? A light cannot be hidden. You are the light of the world. Where does all that come from? And why is that placed on us? What is the story that gets us from this page and how we were born in Adam to the people that God has created and redeemed here at Heritage Bible Church? Well, hang with me over the next few weeks as we learn about God's intervening and redeeming grace. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we thank you for intervening. We were unwilling to come to you. We were blinded by our sin and had no ears to hear. And this is plain from from Adam and across the story of Scripture, including the hard-hearted children of your very own on the Old Testament pages. We thank you for Isaiah's prophecy, his courage to preach and his faithfulness to do so, his hard work to lay all this down, inspired by the Spirit, and your kindness to give it to us, to teach us about our need and teach us about your intervening and redeeming grace. Make us a people who worship you truly from the heart and make us a people who love one another because we are at peace with one another through the blood of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.